0: Welcome back to Straight White American Jesus. We are here at the Summer for Religious Freedom once again, and I get to talk to two people who I've only known a short time, but I think are uh, just uh, really amazing, and that's Aaron Green and Paul Southwick. Want to talk about your stories? Want to talk about your organization? First, I want to say thanks for joining me. Thanks for being here. Absolutely, thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So y'all are part of REAP, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. Uh, Paul, you're the the founder of the organization. And both of you work there and are advocating tirelessly for, uh, for basically trying to stop those exemptions in the ways that they hurt people. These are personal issues for both of you. So I just want to ask quickly, um, before we kind of talk about the organization and all of your mission and values, Aaron, how does this sort of pertain to your story and, and your experiences?
1: Sure. So I grew up in the evangelical church. I deconstructed, though, in my 30s, my early 30s. Left a career, decided to go back to school, and I went to Biola University to major in biblical studies and led their queer underground movement. While I was there, I just happened to do that as well um, and then received some backlash. So I transferred to Azusa Pacific University, still led the Biola queer underground and helped students out at APU as well, and then went into seminary and started working for REAP. So I've been doing queer underground activism on campuses for quite a long time and sort of lead, leading the way in the movements and then got connected with Paul and wanted to be a part of what Paul was doing at REAP.
0: So you uh, went to seminary and so I, uh, you identify as a Christian to this day, uh, even after your deconstruction in some sense, is it, is it it's complicated, it's, a, you know, it's relationship loose. status, it's complicated or?
1: Yeah, it's complicated. It's a loose affiliation. I, I, I identify as spiritual, but I, I do hold to some Christian values, yes.
0: So Paul, tell us your story, and I think there's some, some pretty strong resonances with Aaron's, so.
2: Sure, absolutely. Well, Aaron and I, we, we ran into each other on the queer Christian college underground scene uh, several years back. So I think we've both been in this space for about a decade now. Uh, I went to a conservative Christian college, was homeschooled, and uh, was a closeted queer person in that space. I went through conversion therapy for two years and basically at a certain point uh, reached the conclusion that for my own survival, I had to leave. And so basically, I'm a lawyer by profession, so I've been practicing law for about 13 years and I started doing pro bono representation to queer and trans students that were getting expelled, sent to conversion therapy, harassed. And when I had an opportunity to do it full time about two and a half years ago, I did. And then Aaron and I connected.
0: So Paul, tell us about REAP. You uh, clearly are invested in this personally. You're a lawyer. You could have had a nice fancy life in law and here you are uh, running this nonprofit that's really in the trenches fighting for the rights of of queer students and especially those who are at religious institutions. What's the mission of, of REAP? Tell us about it.
2: Absolutely, so the mission of REAP is really to create safe and affirming educational environments for queer trans and other marginalized communities in these evangelical LDS and other conservative religious spaces. So that's what we do. You know, I think it's similar for, for Aaron, but for me, I, I really want to make sure that nobody goes through what I went through. And so I think that there is a deep sense of trauma that has motivated this call to accountability. And so we, we, we chose the name religious exemption accountability project. Because we do think that sharing stories and exposing abuse, mistreatment, trauma, that is what's going to cause change. That's what's going to make people upset and angry and want there to be safer spaces.
0: One of the things that I've been thinking about uh, lately is that we have Title IX in this country. And so I I think from an outside perspective, a casual observer would say, "Okay, so we have Title IX. So if you wanted to be, uh, we can talk about taking money from the federal government and that. But. If you just want to be accredited, don't you have to sort of like agree that you won't discriminate against people? Um, and yet it seems as if, and I know firsthand, I went to a specific, my brother went to Biola, so I know those institutions very well. It seems that somehow even even institutions that actively discriminate and are marginalizing queer folks, in some cases people of color openly, how do they slip by? How How do they somehow become exempt from those accreditation standards. You would think that they should, but they absolutely don't,
2: not even for accreditation. So we only work in the taxpayer-funded space. So that is our connection to Title IX. But there's a giant religious exemption to Title IX. It's the broadest religious exemption in pretty much any civil rights statute in this country. And it essentially says, well, Christian colleges and schools, you have to pay, you have to follow Title IX, except whenever you don't want to. And that could be even in cases of sexual abuse, even in cases of bullying, harassment. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And guess what? You don't even need to tell anyone that you're not going to be following Title Nine. You can keep it a secret. And that's very damaging. And that's that's a really scary place to be in when you're a queer person and you think, oh, this Christian college seems kind of cool. Like it's got the cool youth pastor vibe, you know? I'll probably be okay. And then... You're okay until you come out and then the whole administration can be turned against you. So Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump did a, did a whole bunch of harmful things to this country, but especially for Christian colleges in the realm of accreditation and in title nine, they essentially made Christian colleges immune from any requirements they don't want to follow.
0: That's like a three hour conversation. I mean, I'm blown away and there's so much to say. What I do, though, want to make sure we get to just in the context of all that, Aaron, is that something I've heard you say numerous times, which is that we pay a lot of attention to churches. You know, on this show, we talk about uh, mega churches and the the influence that they have, the pastors, the celebrity uh, influencers, all that business. But I think one of the things that, that REAP does well and that is really important to you, Aaron, is that these religious educational institutions are an essential part of the ecosystem of the religious right, of Christian nationalism. Can you talk about that and why it's so important to make sure not to miss that?
1: Sure. I, yes, absolutely. I think that it's easy to point our fingers at the church, right? It's for so many reasons. But I think what we often or what gets missed or overlooked is that um, religious leaders, clergy, politicians, judges, doctors, Come out of these religious educational institutions and they disseminate the very things that they've been programmed with in white Christian nationalism. So it's not getting disseminated only in the church, it's getting disseminated in the public sphere too, um, not just in that little private area, which is really frightening. (laughs) So I think that, yeah, our focus at REAP is to call that out and to say, you know, we need to look at both spaces as part of the problem and and start thinking about, well, how what kinds of solutions we can come up for with that. Um, because that almost seems a little bit, not more dangerous, but it's, it's dangerous.
0: One of the things that I saw firsthand and I continue to see first uh, happen is that I don't think people realize that, okay, so if you're a 20-year-old kid and you're, Committed to your Christian faith. You came from an evangelical background, fundamentalist background. Uh, and yeah, you're at Wheaton College, you're at uh, Biola University, you're at um, Patrick Henry, whatever it may be. What you start to realize is hey, if I have doubts about my path, one of the things that's a huge benefit is that there's a direct pipeline, as you just talked about. Like, so if I want to go into law, if I, and I'll say even journalism, if I want to go into uh, politics, If I just take on this identity and I stay in this sort of pipeline, I'll get shot right to the top way more quickly than somebody who's on the other side or who's out on their own. And I'm just wondering if that makes sense to you all in terms of some of the influence that these institutions have and if you've seen that as well. Absolutely. And and we're not talking just about small little Bible colleges. I think a lot of people think,
2: oh, a harmless little Bible college. We're talking about Liberty University having over a hundred thousand students and multiple graduate programs. We're talking about places like Regent that are pumping out lawyers who are going into clerkships with federal judges becoming federal judges, and they are trained in these environments in which they they not only have rules saying that you, you can't be gay or uh, but they they create these ecosystems where Queer people are literally erased and then they are prepared to become teachers in public schools with that mindset that it is okay to erase queer people. So it must be okay to not use pronouns even as a public school teacher. And I have a religious right not to do that. And then I have an entire team of lawyers who will back me up at Alliance Defending Freedom and Beckett Fund. So yes, they, they are funneled into professions. And they are also, there's a lot of gatekeepers. I saw this in my own life. There will be mentors, often white, older men. And they'll say, this kid, okay, you need to bring him in. This one, you need to bring her in. And then once you're in, you're part of a very large system that we're now seeing threatening the country.
0: So what are the goals? If I say, hey, you two are are very well positioned firsthand, the problem you know what effect it is having on the individual lives of queer students at these at these universities. You know what it is having systemically on our courts, in our law space, in our electoral politics, uh, in other places. So, it, it, you know, if we talk about the goals of, of your organization, what is it you want to accomplish?
1: I can talk about some of those things. Um, I can talk about the piece where I think public education is so important. And I do the, the campus organizing for REAP. So a combination of things like organizing and, and public educating or publicly educating folks. Um, one of the big hurdles that I've noticed to get people to care about this is helping them understand why queer, trans and non-binary people are at religious educational institutions. That seems to be the number one question that we get asked. Why are they there? If it's so bad, why don't they just leave? And it's not that simple. I think all of us in this room know that. But I think the the simplest answer is that students between the ages of like 17 and 24 years old, when they go into college, it's a big exploratory time. They don't even discover that they're queer until they're in that space. And oftentimes parents have already paid for them to go there. So there's a lot of things kind of aligned for that person to be there things that we could go into some other time.
0: Well, and sometimes parents will say, I'm only paying for a Christian college, so if you transfer to Cal State or blah, 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 you're out of luck. Absolutely. And don't come
2: home this summer.
1: Exactly. So it's, it's first, I think, helping people understand why they should care about the queer, trans, or non-binary student in the space. And then the other part is is protecting and empowering these students in those spaces to build coalitions, to build communities um, locally, on campus, things like that. And that's where, what I do. I help them do. But I think we have other like, strategic methods that we use as well that Paul can go into. Yes,
2: yeah, so we also use litigation as a storytelling device. So we have a large class action lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Education. It's currently on appeal at the Ninth Circuit. We have over 40 students uh, from 25 plus Christian colleges across the country. And we we sued the government, not the schools, because we want to show the government is funding. This is something that at this conference I've thought about a lot. We're talking about white Christian nationalism and the problem. Our government is funding explicitly white Christian nationalist schools and colleges to the tune of billions at the federal level and at the state level. And you know what? They're very mission-driven. So if you're going to give them almost unlimited access to money, to these mission-driven organizations, you are going to have a giant problem on your hands. So that faucet needs to be turned off. And at that point, the power and influence of fundamentalism in our society would hopefully go back to the smaller level at which it really should exist rather than this expanded version. So we fight back with a lawsuit to shine a light on this. A lot of people don't know the tax dollars are going to these kinds of schools. We also filed Title IX complaints, and we've had 11 federal investigations opened, including against Westmont College, against a whole bunch of educational institutions, Azusa Pacific. And these just shine a light on some of the incidences of abuse. So we use those tools as well.
0: I mean, they're... Yeah, I I really one thing that I appreciate about what y'all just said is, Aaron, you talked about something that's really on the ground and focused on campuses, and then Paul, you talked about something that's just class action, right? It's it's wide, it's sweeping, it's it's has a wide range, and really is aiming at the systemic. So there's a systemic focus, there's an individual focus, uh, and those are working together. A lot of this comes out, and we've talked a lot about this on the show. I talk about it in my book, but it's always worth talking about uh, the idea that the federal government would fund institutions that, as you said earlier, Paul can basically ignore Title IX if they want, it, and it's as if they're a church or something that has the ability to kind of uh, play by its own rules, and there's there's government funding. This, a lot of it traces back to 1954, Brown v. Board, and then we get into the court cases about tax exam status. Would you mind just briefly linking those dots for us? Because I, I always think this story is worth telling, and I think it's worth telling because it links up to what you just said, Paul, about the class action lawsuit and, and the billions of dollars getting uh, thrown to these institutions.
2: Absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad that your your uh, recent book has focused on this. So what a lot of people don't realize is that the religious exemptions and the sort of religious supremacy claims that were above the law that are going on right now, they are not new. This is part of a playbook going back to the 1950s and 60s. And so after Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, somewhat shortly thereafter, the white religious conservatives of the South said, oh my God, we do not want our daughters going to schools with black boys is really what it came down to. And so they opened what were called segregation academies. They didn't call them that, but that's what they're called now. Um, And they were whites-only religious schools. And what I want people to realize is they were thoroughly Christian. We're not just, sometimes they want to think like, oh, that was just cultural racism. No, they were thoroughly religiously racist. God separated the races. Interracial dating and marriage is prohibited by divine order. They had a whole exegesis on all of this, preaching and everything. And so for a little while that worked. And they were able to maintain a separate white-only religious educational system. Very similar to the queer erasure, you know, erasing an entire community from that educational ecosystem. Well, after a while, black parents of black children said, what the hell? Why does my kid not get to go to that really fancy, taxpayer-funded school with a great gym and art classes and stuff? Why do not my black kid doesn't get to go there? And they started suing. And the parents brought the cases. And they lost a lot of them. And we'll probably lose a lot of ours. But eventually they won and they won big at the Supreme Court. And then it went all the way. And that was a case called Norwood in the 1970s. And then we have Bob Jones University in the 1980s. And that was sort of the big win where the government pulled um, IRS 501c3 status. If an educational institution practiced racial discrimination, even if on the basis of sincerely held belief. And so our case in the context of queer and trans rights is very much linked to that history of saying, there are certain things that are so harmful to society, racism and education among them, queerphobia, transphobia and education among them, that the government is constitutionally prohibited from funding them because of equal protection and first amendment concerns. That's the argument we're making
0: whether it will be adopted now or 10, 20 years
2: from now, TBD.
0: One of the things I love about what you just said, and it's something that's almost been a constant theme at the summit this weekend has been that uh, there's, it's easy to think, well, yeah, it would be good to do this. It'd be good to do that. It'd be good to run for office. I probably won't win, so I'm not going to do it. It's too hard. They have too much money. They're too organized. Why even try? And what you just said, Paul, is we may not win this time. Uh, back in the 70s. It took dozens of tries to get to where we eventually got. Aaron, is, as somebody who's really experienced in just on the ground, on campus, uh, queer resistance and organizing, um, would you mind just talking about how that mindset is essential to have if you're going to do this work? Because I, I, I just want people to hear that. Oh, I don't want to run for office. I'll lose. Oh, I don't want to try. Who, who could even make a difference? And yet that's exactly, I think, the wrong way to think about it. So how does that play into your story?
1: So the first time that I organized a protest at Biola, um, it was against their Title IX religious exemption. We were standing waiting for chapel to get out um, in a big line and we had our banners and our queer stuff and all the cool things. Um, And I remember the director of communications coming out of the tower to find me, the organizer, and ask you know why are you doing this and i remember watching her ask me this and she was visibly shaking she was so scared and in that moment i realized how much power we had and how much power these students have and how afraid these schools are of us and how afraid of our messaging and our power and our action and our momentum that they are and that's what I reiterate over and over again to these students, that if they only knew how scared these schools are of what we're doing and the collective organization and power behind what we're doing, we could make huge moves. And we are. But it's hard for, these, for the general public to hear these kinds of stories unless it's coming from REAP or it's coming from other news sources again, we are trying to promote this this topic of queer liberation in religious spaces. But um, there's power in the organization at these schools with these queer and trans and non-binary students. So in addition to the litigation, in addition to all the other moves that we're making, um, I think that that's one of the most powerful pieces is student organizing on these campuses.
0: I I love that story. And you you brought us right into the scene and and it really just hits home. Um, We are out of time. Uh, We could probably talk for the next three days, but we'll stop it here. Uh, Tell us where to to find uh, you all online so we can link up with your work.
1: We're at www.thereap.org. We're on all the socials at reap underscore LGBTQ. You can find us there.
0: I also just appreciate that The Reap as a website is Pretty badass. I'm just, you know, that's just, it's just really, you know. It's, Thank you. Yeah, I might get a tattoo or something. Um, okay. <laughs> appreciate well, you. I'm all. gonna
1: hold you to that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for being here. I, let's talk again soon, and just appreciate you. Appreciate all you do. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks, Brad.